And I also want to say it really dawned upon me today that, you know, um, we're traversing a brand new landscape. Like this is unparalleled and unprecedented in so many more ways than I think anybody has ever experienced in their lifetime. And we may never have this um, time again. So, you know, I was kind of reflecting on all of our recent progress and also thinking through this interview. And I just wanted to like highlight that. That's Joanne Reyes. I'm Joanne Reyes, president of the Fulfillment Fund. And I've been in the nonprofit uh, management space for about two decades now. It is unprecedented in so many ways. And that sentiment is even matched in all of the robocalls I kept getting over the month of August. If you're a parent the school-age kids, I'm sure you got them too. As shared in our reopening plan communications from last week, we are living in unprecedented times that require us to remain flexible. Unprecedented, unprecedented, unprecedented. Please visit the district website to view the 2021 virtual instruction guidebook for families. The guidebook provides I like information these on virtual schedules by They keep you informed. Schools, They're short and sweet. They keep districts parents, and parents connected. And report she even ends with, have a safe and enjoyable Please weekend. And the and truth is, I've had enjoyment at points in the weekends of uh, that led to where we are now. But all of it, I'm sure like you, has been sort of fogged over by the unprecedentedness of this moment. It's complicated. It's tangled. But the thing that I worry about the most is that as we spin the unprecedented narrative, sometimes it's easy to forget what's unprecedented about it. What elements of this moment have revealed to us what is so complicated in this world of learning and development as humans. What is unprecedented? Meet Ellie. Hi, I'm Elizabeth Zamudio. I'm the Vice President of Programs at the Fulfillment Fund. The reason I'm so excited to introduce you to Ellie and Joanne and the Fulfillment Fund is because It's through the experiences of organizations and professionals, young people, parents, all living this right now, where we can unpack what's unprecedented. In this episode, we're focused on first-generation college-going students and the commitment that the Fulfillment Fund makes to them and they make to the Fulfillment Fund to see them through eight years starting in high school through it's to and through college what is it like in this moment to be thinking about applying picking making decisions about college when your responsibilities at home have grown exponentially when the tips and tricks of college entrance are still too exclusive a club after this what was a really important conversation to me What feels most unprecedented is how this moment makes explicit right in our face the inequities as of August 2020. Here's how the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics cited what's happening with unemployment. The percentage of unemployment for a bachelor's degree or higher is 5.3% nationally. If you have some college or an associate's degree, it's 
If you have high school, a high school diploma, but no college, it's 9.8%. If you have less than a high school degree, it's 12.6. That's more than twice the chance of being unemployed. So regardless of what you feel about the future of higher education, if you're 17, 18 right now, or if you're a first generation family in the US, the pathway to employment, happiness, and a place for the full potential of your contribution to your community and this democracy rests with the possibility of a college education. So in this unprecedented moment, let's focus on first-generation students and what their experience is this first week of school. There's a really important event that this organization, the Fulfillment Fund, is throwing October 11th to 14th. They have some outstanding programming called Destination College, which this year, out of this health pandemic has arisen an opportunity for them to open their doors more widely. And I can't encourage folks enough to spread the word. Fulfillment.org slash destination college. The event is open to all first generation college goers. Let me tell you about uh, just a few of the amazing sessions that are going to happen at Destination College on October 11th through 14th. Uh, here's a session, 10 Things Drake Taught Me, How to Stay Motivated Through Your College Years, uh, Budgeting in the Real World, Managing Post-College Finances, LinkedIn 101, Social Media is More Than Posting Pictures, Career Development Essentials, Resume, Speed Networking, and Your Elevator Pitch. Your career. Here's my favorite one. Your career is in a straight line, finding what you love to do. Fulfillment.org slash Destination College, October 11 through 14. Go check it out. Refer your friends. Tell your colleagues. Singing from the rooftops. It is an important event, and I want to support it with everything this show's audience can. Enjoy the show. This is No Such Thing, a podcast about learning in the digital age. I'm Mark Lesser. Joanne, Ellie, thank you so much for joining. I have um, I have a lot to ask you about the Fulfillment Fund. I have a lot to learn about the Fulfillment Fund. While I, I do a fair amount of research for the show, I also, uh, you know, you, you, you learn what you can. Uh, but um, I'm just so interested in the work you all are doing and uh, the experiences that brought you here. So, um, so thanks for being here. You're welcome. We're happy to be here. Um, Joanne, you, I was reading a post that you recently wrote and it says, um, I'm just going to read a quote as we approach this unprecedented time in education, we stand at a crossroads in our path ahead with an entirely virtual semester ahead of us. School and students, as well as the Fulfillment Fund, face new challenges in keeping students on track, graduating, and persisting through college. Describe the challenges um, you're talking about right now for students and for the fun. Well, certainly it's, I mean, again, this, there's no better way to talk about this time as being unprecedented and unparalleled. I mean, we've seemingly seen the educational system turn upside down overnight. Um, you know, we're a society that's used to uh, interacting in person, 
and learning in person and learning also in a tactile way. And for our students, transitioning education and their learning to this completely different environment in which we're only connected with technology and through these video means doesn't have the same type of uh, engagement. You know, there's a certain there's a certain snap of energy you find when you're looking at somebody and you're meeting eyes with them and you can express what you're going through freely. That human connection is so important to what we do overall in uh, you know our society, but more so in education and to really seeing that student's face blossom as they understand the content that you're sharing with them. So that is, you know, these are some of the challenges we're facing is that our students are learning in a completely new environment. On top of that, in particular, with our students, we primarily serve students that are from lower income communities, um, primarily first generation students of color, and whose home environments aren't the most conducive necessarily for learning. You know, there might be many other distractions happening in the home. There may be competing priorities for them to help out with childcare or supplementing family income. That is the reality we're facing today uh, as many of our students navigate what it means to be a student um, this academic year and for honestly for who knows how many more years to come. So that's um, been a really interesting and you know, kind of thought-provoking experience for us to think through, like, how do we better serve students now that we're doing our work virtually and now that they're doing their work virtually? And not just that it's virtual and, you know, the whole set of digital challenges is a different topic altogether that, you know, we could spend far more time talking about. And I'm sure we will. But knowing, too, that uh, the pandemic has um, unearthed and really put into sharp focus the inequities that have existed for many, many years, right? And the, the, the time is now for us to catalyze um, around these and create positive solutions to, you know, to break down the barriers to college entry and to college success. For the Fulfillment Fund, it's been very difficult financially, like many organizations, because, you know, just our, our economy is suffering. And that is, you know, what's happening. And philanthropically, I think, too, many, many donors are hedging their bets about, you know, what may come in the future. We're very fortunate um, to have great financial sustainability, um, but, you know, from the landscape overall, what we're seeing is that other organizations don't have that. And are, we're, we're seeing a withdrawal in other organizations providing the kinds of supports that are most critical to students right now. So I think that's a that's a major challenge that we as a community face, not just the fulfillment fund. Yeah, I think a lot of people don't don't think um, it's easy to forget until a time like this, how uh, interconnected, you know, whether whether it's on the industry side or public service side, um, you know, just how intricately these things are, are uh, connected. And, and, you know, nonprofits um, as, as one sort of node in the network of supports that young people have are really built upon one another's mission and and where it's working well we're really trying to use one another to um just like we do on on the the private sector side right we are we're filling gaps and needs individually as businesses but but um but typically it's not it's never one one of us that's that's doing all of it and so when uh, a few of these organizations start to 
to not be able to deliver services, it affects all of us in really profound ways. I think that's such a good point. Um, Ellie, I'm, I'm eager to jump into the mission of Fulfillment Fund and what you all um, do in LA and just more broadly as contributors to what's happening in the field. Um, I wonder if you'd tell me, you know, just as a way of getting to know you, I'm curious about your engagement in this work. Um, I know that that you are a, f a first-gen college student, um, and you spent a long time as a counselor. Um, and I'm, I'm just curious if you'd tell me a little bit about what it, what it means to be in this role at Fulfillment Fund at this stage of your life and, um, you know, in hindsight, um, tell us what sense that makes to you uh, based on your experience. Sure. So I've been with the organization for 13 years and 12 of those 13 years I served as a college counselor. I was working directly with students, providing one-on-one -on -one support. And so I really got to know the the challenges uh, our students are facing. Um, as a first-generation college student myself, uh, college graduate, I understand the challenges of our students who are students of color. I, myself, as a Latina, first to go to college in my family, first to graduate from high school, um, and then first to go on to receive an advanced degree as well. I understand the, the challenges, and fortunately, through hearing our students' Uh, perspectives and understanding what the challenges were at home with the families being unsure of, should we take on a student loan that's a debt? Is all, isn't all debt bad? And explaining those nuances to our families that, no, it's more of an investment. It's not necessarily a, a negative thing. It's not credit card debt, per se. Um, explaining to them that it's okay that their child study at a state or even the next city over, it's okay that they live in the dorms because they need to focus on their academics where at home, many of our students are challenged with other competing priorities as Joanne mentioned. Um, but right now in COVID, we're seeing that our students have to stay home. Um, they're having to work from their kitchen table or a shared bedroom with their siblings um, or a shared living space um, because we have many homes who have intergenerational homes. And there are several uh, family members living in the home and it's very difficult to find quiet places to study. And so understanding all of these challenges and competing priorities that our students are facing is really important for myself and our team who largely are also first-generation college graduates and understand the, the challenges that our students are facing. And we are all very passionate about the work that we're doing, about the mission of ensuring that our students are graduating from high school, first and foremost, that they're prepared academically and uh, socially to face the challenges on a college campus and a college environment, which is new to many, and to be able to successfully navigate the college career path. And we wanna ensure that our students are able to not only graduate with a college degree, but that they can successfully enter the workforce once they graduate. And so it's a it's a eight year commitment that we're making with our students. They enter our program in ninth grade. We see them all the way through college completion and then they continue on to our alumni program. So we joke with our students that once you're with us in ninth grade, you never leave us. 
uh, you're stuck with us <laughs> for the lifetime. Uh, but it's really rewarding to be able to hear from students once when they're in college and they return to us for support because they have a question um, and maybe they don't have an advisor that they can go to on campus and they return to Fulfillment Fund who is familiar and they know is a support system. Or having our uh, college graduates invite us back to their college graduation to watch them walk the stage or having the students ask for career advisement or um, if we'll review their graduate school statements. Um, inviting us back to watch them receive their doctoral degrees. Uh, it's just amazing to be able to see the, the ripple effect that the program has. Uh, we've been in existence for 42 years. We've served over 20,000 students in the last 40 years. And we know that many of our, our students have younger siblings who they've been able to guide through the college process as well. And then family members, um, cousins, uh, aunts, uncles, even parents who went back to school to receive their uh, GED or high school diploma, they help guide them through the information they receive from the fulfillment fund. So, so um, today was the first day of school in Los Angeles. Um, I'm, I have so many questions about that, but, but, um, I wonder if, um, Ellie, start just by um, talking about how you prepared for today. I mean, how, how does one prepare for the first day of school in a climate like this? Um, you know, running the programming that you are and the kind of supports that you are, how did this first day, uh, how is it different from any other first day? Well, definitely not being able to be on campus to welcome has been a huge challenge for us this year. And uh, that's where we feed off of our students' energy. Uh, we love to be interacting with the students and engaging and same with our teachers, our partner teachers at the high schools. Um, we all are feeling the pain of not being able to be in front of our students. The number one priority was technology. We needed to ensure that all of our students had access to adequate technology. Um, so the LAUSD was able to deploy laptops and MiFi hotspots to families who are in need. However, we've seen a lot of challenges in this first week. Um, there has been an overload in our uh, internet connectivity, I think citywide. <laughs> mm -hmm. I think even I myself am challenged with uh, internet connectivity, uh, despite not having one of the LAUSD MiFi's. Um, but then also there are challenges. These Some of these Chromebooks are old. Um, the students are receiving recycled Chromebooks and they may not be functioning properly. Cameras not working, chargers not working, and then having to troubleshoot that. So a parent would need to go back to the school to get a new uh, device, but perhaps they're working and they're not able to do that. So then it, the responsibility falls on the older sibling. So the older sibling has to put their academics aside so that they can help the younger siblings at home and ensure that they're online on time for their classes. And so a lot of our students we're finding are very challenged because of the competing priorities. They, they have to ensure that the younger siblings are focused academically, that they're logged on, that they're following the courses that are very much self-directed. Um, while their parents may be essential workers and aren't home. So they're not able to help support. So there have been a lot of learnings this first week. 
we're taking in everything and and trying to adjust and and most uh, adequately support our students as best as possible. What is the when when you're chatting with families this week? I'm just curious to put us at a at a moment in time in this pandemic. Um, how are people feeling in Los Angeles when when you chat with families about getting started this week? Um, I feel like there is sort of a different energy in different places of the country. Can you just tell a little bit about that? With our families, there's um, a high amount of stress, stress and overwhelm. Uh, the The technology is confusing. Even for myself, who I feel I'm pretty technologically adept at my age and um I have to help my children who are in middle school. And it took us 40 minutes to figure out how to log into their classroom yesterday. <laughs> and um, I can only imagine how our families are feeling when they have several children that they're trying to manage at the same time and help log into uh, a website that they may not be familiar with, a website that may not even be in their language. Something that is extremely challenging and frustrating. Uh, we've had a lot of family Zoom calls to help troubleshoot. And we see parents who are on their cell phone taking Zoom calls on their cell phone during a quick break that they're able to take from work. Um, and so they're rushing out to be able to ask a question so that when they can get home, they can relay the information or send it home to someone who's at home with their child. Yeah. Um, so our parents are really trying to make it work, um, but they are feeling the strain and the overwhelm. Um, and then our students are feeling the overwhelm as well. That they don't want to put another strain on their families who they're seeing being impacted financially from COVID. And for them to, to uplift another stressor, um, a lot of them stay quiet uh, because they don't want to stress their parents out any further. And I think so it's honestly, really, mm -hmm. I think, Mark, this is where we see the huge equity gaps, right? So, you know, families, and I feel very fortunate to be able to say this, but many families like mine were able to have a parent working from home, assisting their child, um, being there sort of to handhold them through this process. And then there are many families for whom that is not possible, right? It is, uh, it is the difference between um, being able to make rent that month and keeping your job, you know, because we've already seen such a huge, um, you know, wave of unemployment happening due to COVID and making that really difficult choice and how unfair that, you know, that's the kind of environment we're facing now that our, our students are having challenges in their first week um, without the uh, adequate supports to be able to help them surmount these challenges due strictly to the inequity we have in our society. Yeah, I, I um, this may relate to this question on my mind, which, which um, Joanne was my next question for you is, when you look at the deficits of the modern education system, um, I, I wonder which of them you think have left families the most unprepared for this moment. Um, I mean, certainly we've talked about the technology gap being such a, a, a wide gulf. Um, you know, we've had this gap for many, many years, and um, this is not new that technology is um, unequally available. Um, to our communities. And what is this pandemic has done is that it's really brought that into sharp focus. You know, it, it put some real um, accountability in our districts to have to provide 
technology uh, assistance, you know, devices and internet. Um, and many didn't. And prior to this all beginning, I mean, there were some proactive schools that were able to take advantage of the first wave of technology that was available. But again, as Elizabeth mentioned, um, it's old, you know, the technology is old and some were inadequate. You know, there's a difference between a Chromebook and an actual laptop, a difference between a, an iPad and an actual laptop or even a Chromebook. So the technology divide is really, I think, become so evident um, throughout all this. And then also, again, that, you know, we take for granted, you know, I, I applaud our local school district because, you know, they never stopped giving away meals, you know, to our students. Many of our students qualify for free and reduced lunches. And um, food scarcity was a real issue, you mm -hmm. know, as we faced um, this pandemic and not having two solid meals uh, for our students. Many times two solid meals were had at school. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, it's really hard to concentrate on your studies when you're hungry. And so our district did a pretty good job of getting meals out there to, to, to students. But as we continue on in this pandemic, that's also like something that's brought into sharp focus as a part of, um, you know, educational equity. We need to make sure that students are in a place where they can actually learn and they're, you know, an environment conducive to learning. And again, I, and I bring up the, the, the assumption that we're all going to have a, a place where we can study quietly without um, distractions. And that's simply not the case in many households for many reasons. So those are, I think, some of the the breaking points um, within education that we sort of didn't really have to face because when we had physical classrooms and food was being distributed at schools and technology wasn't as big of a factor, you didn't really see those fissures, right? You didn't see what the needs were. But then in this environment, we're all being asked to learn at home and in a different way, you know, that they're very, very clear. We learned even last semester, our students were, um, you know, having all of these sessions they had to do at school. So by the time they were actually logging on to some of our, um, the material that we were providing to them to keep them on that college track, it was between 10 p.m. and 2 a.m. in the morning. I mean, how insane is that to think that, you know, all of our students had all of these different things that they had to juggle and the stresses and pressures and the only time they could find to, you know, to pursue their dreams and to pursue their goals and make sure that they were doing what they needed to do was between 10 at night when, and 2 a.m. when most of us are sleeping. Mm. I would also add on the higher education end, so many students are opting to go to the local community colleges during yeah. this pandemic for cost savings on tuition um, to stay closer to home for more flexibility with their schedules. Our schools, our local community colleges were already overwhelmed. They had impacted courses and it was very difficult for our students to navigate the community college campus with the courses pre-COVID. Now, post-COVID, not post-COVID, during COVID, um, it's even more impacted. Our students aren't able to register for the courses that they need in order to transfer or graduate with an associate's degree within two years. It was already challenging for our students to be able to take those courses and many times attended two community colleges at once so that they could transfer within two years, um, two to three years for most students. Now, looking long-term, um, I'm afraid that it'll extend to three to four, maybe five years for a student to be able to transfer or leave with an associate's degree from the community college. Yeah. 
I had we had um, so uh, in within my organization, one of the things we've been um, doing in order to try and keep some semblance of um, what what opportunities and what uh, experiences are the right next steps for our students in place. We, we um, transitioned to an all uh, virtual internship program this summer where um, that's been rewarding in a lot of ways. But but uh, one of the calls I had today, somebody mentioned that uh, we're having all kinds of issues because many of the state laws uh, for hiring students require a, a live signature. Um, students don't have printers at home um, and, and COVID restrictions. And therefore, uh, you know, trying to figure out which of those states will uh, let us do DocuSign and and other other means of um, getting them into these experiences is um, you know it's fascinating and I think for a lot of parents um, folks who are sort of you know education interested but maybe don't have a student in the system or or maybe are not educators um, I think it's tempting to think well just get everybody Chromebooks you know it's all about sort of logging in uh, just logging in to get your coursework um, but we don't realize how uh, what role tech is playing in this whole um, thing and so one of the things I wanted to ask you to is is just um, you have a mission that is specifically focused on, you know, this this eight year uh, transition from high school to college and and um, and beyond, right? What it takes to to create a successful pathway there. Um, just describe, you know, I I just mentioned one example, but um, if I ask you what role is tech playing in this experience for young people, um, what does that make you think of in this moment? I think of the moments where it's really integral for them to have um, one set of technology to another. So for instance, this past summer, what we experienced with our recent high school graduates who did and who were deployed some form of technology by their, their school, you know, once they became graduates, that was retrieved. And, you know, many of them uh, are college bound but they didn't have any technology over the summer at all. So they were having to complete, um, you know, the necessary paperwork on their phones, on their devices. Um, and that's not conducive to, you know, writing anything meaningful, right? I mean, there's only so much you can do on a handheld. Mm -hmm. And so, and they weren't going to be able to obtain a device until they started school. So it was sort of like this chicken or egg situation, right? What, like, how can you get to where you want to go without the tools you need to get there? Yeah. You know, and it's so funny, printers. I mean, that's, everybody talks about, you know, how like, oh, well, you know, we've gone paperless and things like that. But there is a large chunk of this world that still exists on paper. Mm -hmm. Right. And so even as our students are traversing the new school year ahead, you know, there, there cannot be an assumption on behalf of schools that, um, 
the physical items that students need are just going to be available to them. Yeah. School supplies, printout, things like that, that, that needs to be provided by the district. And, you know, we started going paperless in many, many ways and thinking our students didn't need or want necessarily more papers. But, you know, I think with it's we need to revisit whether or not that's the case and what we need to do to address some of those, um, you know, uh, gaps in the access that they need to the information they need to have. You know, there's so much of this, it's opportunity, you know, in many ways that I think of, you know, the ways that we've all sort of become a lot more tech savvy now, parents of students included, like we've all out of necessity had to make a technological leap forward. Yeah. And that presents opportunity for the future, but we're still in the um, learning curve phase and we haven't surmounted that yet. Yeah. Again, from the post-secondary end, who I'm speaking towards the, the high school perspective on, on the, our post-secondary end, it's really troubling because our community colleges have the LA's promise uh, where they, the college promise, where they provide students with technology. They all have access to a laptop. However, our four-year students do not have the same resources. So when our students were sent home in March, um, they were sent home without their computers that they would use at the library or at the computer labs. They didn't have their own laptops. Um, They came home to no internet or very shoddy internet. And so our our college students who were still expected to complete college level work were finding themselves completing work on their smartphones. And so we had students completing papers, typing it out on their phone. Um, And that's how they were submitting their documents. They were taking Zoom calls on their cell phones. Mm. Uh, It was very challenging. And so one of the things that we were fortunate enough to do was um, we were able to deploy our scholarships a little bit earlier um, that our students earn. Um, We were able to disperse the money earlier so that they could buy some technology that they needed. Um, But we know that that's not the case for all students. Uh, So it is really troubling. It's very concerning. It's something that we're bringing up with higher ed professionals so that they're aware of as we go into this fall semester. I wonder when we, when we talk about, um, there, there are just so many glaring gaps that it almost doesn't feel, um, right to talk about what the opportunities are yet, but, but let's, let's dream of a moment where, um, where, you know, we fix some of this infrastructure. I wonder what are, are there exciting moments you've seen in the last four or five months where you're noticing different opportunities in either the services you provide or the way that young people are being and in, you know in, industrious or, or um, figuring out workarounds that are sort of tech enabled um, you know are, are there things you're seeing that sort of spark your senses for what the future might look like Certainly. I, you know, there are, I mean, not to underscore the fact that these technological gaps still do exist. I think there's a sharper focus on making sure that we resolve them. So that's definitely a silver lining in all this, right? Mm. Before we were dragging our feet on this and like, oh, it's really not that bad. It is really bad. We've recognized that. And now we're actually taking steps to remedy it, which is great. Um, A couple of things that came to mind were like, our parents, our parents, you know, it was, with the challenges of 
having to run a, you know, a household and being income earners and um, managing your entire family's life, it was often very difficult for our parents to be as engaged in participating in physical meetings, yeah. you know, as we had hoped. Mm. Um, it's, it's a hard trek. LA is a place where there's tons of cars and tons <laughs> of traffic. Yeah. And it is just it wasn't feasible, you know, parents are having to come in from all across town to make it back to the school if they could have the time, you know, to to be there during the school's hours, yeah. right? And many parents work, many parents work multiple jobs. So now in this virtual environment, we've been having these virtual meetups with parents. And that's been really helpful. It's a lot easier for them to participate in that way um, as, as long as they are able to, you know, surmount the technological barrier. But just the convenience of working in this way, we're all on Zoom video now. We can interact in that way and they can get meaningful information from us in that way. That's been a real blessing, mm-hmm. you know, and I think parents have appreciated that, that the flexibility around it. We've also been able to then take our content that we deliver to a smaller cohort of students at our partner schools and make it available more broadly, right? And so that's been great as well. You know, we, ne- we needed to address um, gaps in knowledge and financial aid um, right when we sent all of our students home. Um, and right away, our teams began recording financial aid webinars that were not only available to our students, but were available across all of Los Angeles Unified and quite frankly, publicly available. Yeah. So any student who was like, you know, had questions about what does this mean on my um, financial aid report? Like, what does, you know, like, how do I make sense of this? Or how do I appeal this given my family circumstances have now changed? They could get that knowledge from us in a really kind of easily accessible way. Those are two ways. And I think that that's been, a real opportunity for us. And I'm going to actually um, let Ellie talk about, I think the service delivery we have with Destination College, our upcoming um, college access and success conference being a real benefit and silver lining in uh, you know, the, the technological evolution that we've had to undergo because of COVID. We've seen our students really take on, take in stride these challenges and really um, are very technologically adept themselves. They're teaching us a lot. And one of the programs that we have on the post-secondary side is our peer mentoring program. And typically our students are in cohorts on specific college campuses and they meet with one another. It's a group of about 10 to 20 students who all meet together. When uh, the shutdown happened in March, all the peer mentors across five different campuses decided to do a virtual group meeting. So we now had 50 students across five different campuses all meeting together and forming this community of mentorship and community building that was around first generation students of color who were on a four-year campus. And we've been able to expand that now into this new academic year where we're at seven college campuses, four-year campuses, and uh, doubled our numbers. We now have 104 participants this year. So that's been a really great advantage um, to community building, which has been a struggle for many uh, in this virtual environment. But also Destination College, as Joanne mentioned, this is our 24th year hosting our annual Destination College. It's typically a college fair. We knew that there was inequity in college fairs for first-generation students of color from low-income communities. Uh, Many times college representatives do not recruit out of the schools in our neighborhoods. Um, 
many just aren't able to get to our schools because they prioritize other schools. Um, and so what we did a few years ago, a few decades ago, is we brought the colleges to our students. And so we traditionally held this uh, full day event on a college campus. We bring in over 80 colleges and universities from across the campus to meet with students and then offer workshops for the students and parents. This year we're going virtual and the beauty of it being virtual is that we're able to provide it nationally. So now outside of our small little community of partner high schools, we're able to expand this to schools in New York, in New Jersey, Texas, Nevada, and all throughout California. Incredible. And it's going to have such a broader reach and a greater impact. And then also we have presenters from across the country diversifying our presentation to include voices from admissions, from um, college access organizations, uh, family uh, parent organizations, parent advocacy groups. Uh, it's been, it's going to be a really great event uh, taking place in October, October 11th through 14th. And the information is on our website and it is open to anyone who's in ninth through 12th grade and also our college students. We're having uh, college to career readiness workshops um, for college students who, um, who are interested in beefing up their resume, learning about LinkedIn, um, and then even uh, attending our career fair. And so that can be accessed at uh, fulfillment.org slash destination college. And you know, so Mark, I think the real upshot of this is again, I think of COVID as a catalyst for many things, but this is a, a catalyst in such a positive way um, for Fulfillment Fund because I think we as an organization have it ingrained in our culture to innovate and constantly be looking at our data and our results to ask ourselves how we can do better. And we were always challenged by the fact that we had a limited number of spots that we could offer on a college campus, right? There's only so many bodies you can fit into a giant lecture hall. Um, and there's only so much you can pay for in terms of out of your budget for rentals of such things. But now with, you know, the world going virtual the way it has, and there's sort of like the cultural acceptance of this because out of necessity, we can offer it more broadly. We can bring together a bigger community of people, of like-minded folks who really, really want to have this impact for first-generation students and it can be a couple of days of um, a real groundswell of college going and college success, you know? So there's so much more that we can offer now because of this. And I think the key to this for us is just to keep it as easily accessible as possible. It's, you know, we're not surmounting any equality or equity gaps if we make this too difficult for people to access, yeah, right? Yeah. We need to make sure it's as readily available as possible in a platform that most people can use for free. Yeah. So, so what are, I am curious about, I, I have, I have, um, uh, so many mental notes on these, these last couple of things that, that you both are sharing, um, that I would love to dig into, one of them is that I think there are a lot of organizations right now who are trying to learn what they need to about um, how to make these things as as open as and accessible as they can. I wonder if you can share a little bit of what you've learned so far in terms of, uh, just for example, take a step back and think about how did you pick a platform for October? 
Um, that's one of those things that, uh, you know, I, I think there, there are, you know, there are just millions of people trying to figure out how do we get young people into the right, into the right place. Um, what was that process like for you? Sure. We shopped around quite a bit to see what virtual platforms are out there. And there are some really nice ones who give you all the bells and whistles, but they were just out of our price range. Mm -hmm. <laughs> we're still at the end of the day, we're still a nonprofit and we're operating on a nonprofit budget, especially in these times. And um, so we just went back to the drawing board and we said, what are our students familiar with? And what our students know is Zoom. And so we decided to go with Zoom and it's the easiest uh, platform everyone knows. You just click on the link and then you're in your webinar. And so we're trying to do as much on our end, on the back end, um, so that the user side is as seamless as possible. All they have to do is register and then they'll automatically receive their registration links for the webinars that they selected that they'd like to attend. The students will have a choice of between 10 to 14 presentations, workshops that they can attend and they can self-select which workshops they'd like to attend. Our families also have the option to attend um, parent, family, guardian workshops um, that will be translated in Spanish and uh, we're working on Korean. And um, we'll have our, our parents register for that as well. Mm -hmm. And then the college students will be able to register between uh, about four workshops and the career fair as well. Yeah. So we did have an internal committee that did a lot of road testing. Nice. Tell, uh, tell me how, how did that work? Like what, what was the process? Um, generally speaking, we would find out because this is again, a brand new territory, right? Sure. Not a whole lot of people have done virtual much of anything um, prior to all this. So as soon as we would find out about something, we would hop on to that virtual conference, take notes about best practices, connect with others. We did a lot of connecting with other um, event organizers asking them what worked, what didn't work. And then at the end of the day, like Ellie mentioned, we went back to the drawing board and asked ourselves the essential, the essential question of how do we make this as easy for our students as possible? You know, like what are the steps we can eliminate to, um, to make sure that there aren't any barriers because we know they're under a lot of stress and they have so much already that they're thinking about. The last thing we want them to have to confront is a cumbersome process and a, a platform they're not comfortable in. Yeah. So, so you all, um, so there was a committee, you split up, you did some of, uh, presumably you had uh, eventually get to a place where you have a little bit of a, uh, like a matrix for, um, what works about the platform, what doesn't, and then would you all come back to the table and say, here's what we like about it, here's what we didn't, or how did you sort of process all of the, all of what's available out there? Mm -hmm. Generally speaking, that's exactly right. We have our internal committee that um, would come back every few weeks and discuss, and also just ongoing conversations. I'm really proud of our team because we have really open lines of communication. It doesn't feel like we've missed a beat at all in terms of not being physically located in an office anymore. Let's not forget that, that all of us are working out of our homes and that we don't actually see each other mm -hmm. <laughs> outside mm -hmm. of Zoom. And so it was just ongoing conversations. We'd connect either one-on-one -on -one or in our small groups and say, well, what worked about that? Yeah. What was good? What was the price? You know, Are they willing to give us a better price? Um, how could we utilize it? Should we utilize it? All of those questions that I think are really, really important when you're thinking through 
um, how to shape your event to, to achieve the goals that you have. But I think the most important thing was we had said about having, you know, very lofty goals. Like these are what we want. This is what we want to accomplish out of this. We want our students to walk away with an experience. They feel inspired. They have a lot more knowledge than they did prior to it. So we do a lot of um, pre and post assessments with all of our um, service deliveries to, to make sure that we're actually on track with increasing knowledge and that they walk away with a sense of like, I can do this. Mm -hmm. This is possible. And there are tools and their support. And their parents walk away with that same confidence and their uh, our college students are walking away with actual practical tips because we know too that you know as they're progressing with their degrees and marching toward that eventual college graduation they will face one of the toughest job markets we've seen in decades mm -hmm. just to close close the conversation on platforms um do you all did did that? Is there a possibility that that committee had um, documentation, sort of the note taking that you did as you were uh, studying some of the platforms that were available that we could make um, the rest of our audience um, give, give access to? Sure, we could sum it up. It's 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 not going to be anything like you know. It's not going to be a Bible of sorts. It's like, okay, here's what we explored. Here were the pros and cons of it. Here's what we found out. A lot of places didn't really want to tell us a price up front and yeah. wanted us to go a little further. Um, but yeah. sure, we'd be happy to share the, you know, the platforms we explored. That would be amazing. I, and and um, I think that there are a lot of nonprofits um, in the audience who are going through the same thing. And I think the more... Um, the more we can all sort of share and make our, our homework open, um, it, you know, it doesn't have to be anything terribly scientific. We're, we're all going to engage a, a similar process in that, that sort of committee. And uh, I can certainly add our own, uh, some of the, the platforms that I've explored as well. Um, you know, I, the one thing that I want to say is I think we've talked a lot about equity. I think um, uh, it does – not go without saying that every company who are benefiting from this moment, uh, whether it's the pandemic or um, any of the sort of the how do you how do you call it the the sort of um, the blast radius of that event, um, it does not go without saying that those companies who are benefiting realize the role that they play in. Um, deepening the inequities that we're talking about in this conversation, right? So um, I, I do want to call that out in part because ed tech, right? There's this this phrase of ed tech um, that comes with all, all kinds of, uh, you know, benefits and, and tremendous possibilities for the future of education. I also want to call out the fact that ed tech has um, as much possibility for reinforcing these inequities as any other um, of the folks who have benefited from the field of education. And, and I want to call on all of them. If you're a platform and you're messing around in this space, um, we all need to understand our role in uh, how we reinforce or um, or unbundle and, and work on some of these inequities. Um, it is real. And the idea that your students may be having any less than an ideal experience in a virtual platform through um, 
through the Destination College experience is, uh, you know, something for every ed tech organization that's running a sort of conference platform needs to think about and uh, and I hope will. So um, soapbox, a little soapbox yeah. moment there. But um, there are uh, – I put college into TikTok just as a, as a search term. Um, of course, I was appalled at some of the stuff that came up, but there were about 10 hashtags, you know, like sort of tags that come up in TikTok around college. Um, people are, are probably most familiar with, um, just in the last two days, with schools going back, um, some of the horrific behavior that has has been captured in TikTok as a result of, you know, fraternities coming back and and uh, young people sort of pushing against uh, all of the sort of pent up feeling of being being constrained and confined and coming together and doing these these uh, horrific events where they are just sort of completely um, exposing each other to whatever uh, whatever good they might have done in this quarantine period are now sort of undoing. And and I think people are attuned to that. On the other hand, um, one of the things that I saw a lot of are first-gen students talking to one another about things they wish they'd known uh, about going to college. And I wonder, um, Ellie, like, are you seeing your young people on TikTok? What are the – we talked a little bit about the financial literacy um, work that you all have done and, and opened um, as sort of, uh, you know, uh, um, open curriculum for those who want to access that kind of thing. Um, are there other platforms that your that your students and alum are on that that are sort of, you know, uh, getting you excited about what the possibilities are for how we socially um, how we learn together about um things like our college pathway? Sure. Our, um, the pandemic definitely uh, forces to create a TikTok account. <laughs> we did not have a, an official fulfillment fund TikTok account. Nice. And we found that we weren't, we would email students in the initial shutdown and we'd have crickets, right? Uh, we hear nothing from the students. So we started posting on Instagram. Yeah. Um, but we have a lot of our college students on Instagram. Um, so then we heard that our college students were telling their younger siblings in high school, hey, Fulfillment Fund posted this, check it out. And so we had workshops um, being promoted through our college students. Um, then we heard, why don't you create a TikTok? We thought, well, what are we going to do on TikTok? And so we've had to get creative. And I really give our team a lot of credit. Um, they've tried to figure it out and they've investigated what is uh, interesting on TikTok and um, and so we've done a lot of uh, informational videos around financial aid completion or um, the big one for us in this, the spring was how to complete your uh, commitment to register for school, mm-hmm. for college. And so we just posted one of the typical TikTok videos where we point at the different steps on the video with some music that they're, that's hip right now. <laughs> <laughs> and it, it got the message across right. the students, they watched the video and then they understood what the next steps were. And then we started seeing a higher level of engagement. Yeah. Then they started responding to our emails. Then they started showing up for our office hours. Then they came to our workshops. Um, so we're definitely leveraging social media as a tool moving forward. 
And um, it's interesting that you you mentioned about the first generation students speaking to one another. Uh, that's the whole premise behind our peer mentoring program is to build the sense of community because our students feel lost as first gen students. And I remember that feeling when I stepped on campus and I thought, where are my people? <laughs> where yeah. am I supposed to go? And, um, and when we put them together in a community before they even set foot on campus, uh, post pre-COVID, set foot. <laughs> yeah. um, but before they enter that first day of school, they have a sense of community behind them and it helps empower them and know that they have this support network who is rooting for them to graduate and take the proper courses and uh, meet with the advisor that they need to meet with or even use the resources on campus. A lot of our students are really reluctant to seek out the resources that are readily available on campus because of the unknown. So many of our students won't go, they won't walk into a career center on their own. They have to be nudged and encouraged. But if they have someone else on campus who's already been to the career center and says, I'll walk with you to the career center and take you there, they're 90% more likely to go to the career center and utilize uh, such an important um, aspect of our college success work um, that I would love to see replicated on so many more campuses for first-generation students. Yeah, me too. I have so many things I could talk. Uh, I, I really want to talk to the two of you about. I, though the question I am dying to ask you both is: um, as first-gen students and and as two people who have committed um, a huge part of your work and life to this mission. Um, one of the, the two things I really want to make sure our audience um, hears us you know, talk a little bit about is I think that there's a lot of question right now about the value of college, right? And I think that there are a lot of families who, um, you know, there are families all across the socioeconomic spectrum who are wondering about now that we have this moment where you you're not stepping foot on on campus, um, you know what the value of the college education is. How do I get the most value, um, et cetera? Can you talk a little bit? And and this is specifically for young people who. Um, who do not have, um, you know, have all of the aspirations of uh, the student next to them, but may not have the benefit of being able to make a sort of wrong step in this investment or might be a first gen student or are juggling this with um, with seven other uh, obligations at home. How are you talking to students and, and families about that right now? The Because for so long, we've talked about um, four-year college continuing to be, uh, by, by the data, uh, the most important way to build pathways um, that, that change some of those circumstances. How are you talking about that now, and how has it changed um, given some of the concerns of families right now? I can handle sort of the external messaging component of this. And I think um, Ellie will be able to speak to how we're positioning this with our families and our students, especially given we were just at a really, really critical turning point in those decision-making 
um, you know, in the decision making process, you know, with decision day in May and now um, the beginning of the new school year. Right. So, I mean, seven out of 10 jobs in the United States still require uh, post-secondary education you know, anything beyond a high school education, seven out of 10 jobs. So that doesn't go away. And in fact, that percentage has just been increasing. The Georgetown study that was released in 2013, I think it was around 63%. So it's, it's gone up a couple of percentage points since 2013 that I think a college education is still very, very relevant. And so let's not forget that. But in the COVID environment, what we've been seeing is that unemployment um, has disproportionately affected those without a college degree. Hmm. So it's not just the pathway, but it's also the protection. Mm. It's, it's you know, the level of protection that we have as college graduates is, mu- is much higher. Something like, it was like 15, in the month of May, it was like 15.8% unemployment among those without a college degree versus 7.8% um, unemployment for those with a college degree. That's mm. a huge discrepancy. That in itself should tell you what the value of a college education is. Now, in terms of speaking to the best value of a college education, I think um, the momentum that you build is so important, you know, Mm. from high school transitioning to college. And we don't want our students to lose any of that momentum. Right. And so we were seeing that um, students were at a really critical point where they were deciding, should I go to the four year that I got into or should I go to the two year that's closer to home and far less costly? Should I go to the competitive private school that I got to that's requiring me to be there in person for my first semester versus, you know, a less competitive local college? And those were really difficult questions to answer from the counseling standpoint. And I think why there was such tremendous value in what our team does um, to support students through that decision-making process. And Ellie, maybe you can talk a little bit about that. When speaking to our families, we really talk about the investment in college. Um, this week, Mount St. Mary's University, they publish a report every year on the status of women and girls in California. And this year's report, they highlighted the wealth gap. And for every $100 owned by a white male, Latinas hold $3.00. and African-American women hold 80 cents for every $100 that a white male owns. And um, that's data, irrefutable data that we can share with our families on the importance of making the investment in college. Um, Also noted in the report, a woman with a four-year college degree earns double uh, what a woman with a high school diploma earns and three times more than a woman without a high school diploma. So again, emphasizing these facts to our families. Um, And all of our families are really supportive of our students. Um, They want the best for their child. They want the best. They want them to succeed and continue studying. It's just the circumstances and then the fear of the financial strain. And so we do our best to educate our families on the financial aid that is available, um, the scholarship, the resources, the opportunities that are available to them to help alleviate some of the, the concerns that the family members have. Well, um, I want I wanted to ask uh, Joanne coming back to I got the Mount St. Mary's um, study and I will link to that in the um, in the show notes. Joanne, the data that you were pointing to, um, I missed. 
Oh, it was in an article by in USA Today. It was an article posted in I think early June about unemployment. Um, po- you know, in the first wave of unemployment post COVID. I was so jarred by that, honestly. I just thought, oh my gosh. I mean, this is really what our families are are feeling. This is the inequity we're talking about. This is, you know, evidence of how, um, you know, the opportunity gap uh, doesn't and does protect certain others. And also um, wanted to note something too, that like in thinking about long-term impacts to education, and Mark, you and I had talked about a little bit of this previously, um, you know, had another conversation with uh, a supporter of ours who is wonderful. And he was telling me about some of their friends' kids wanting to defer this year, um, you know, take a gap year, do some volunteering, um, figure out kind of what, you know, wanted some advice about what they could be doing this year. And, you know, these are families that are not first generation. They're not, you know, coming from lower income households. And, you know, like that conversation in of itself was very telling because, you know, there's a subset of us that we don't have that luxury of being able to take a gap year and not do not pursuing something that's either income related or, or just taking a gap year and not pursuing college right away. Um, And that when I think about it, like what'll happen next year when we have the wave of college applicants who took Mm. a gap year or, or deferred, um, and our students that are our rising seniors marching toward that application season when uh, many, um, because of the disruption presented by COVID, we haven't been able to do standardized testing, which we know was fraught with problems already to begin with. But there's, you know, a lot of uh, universities now are um, standardized testing SAT, ACT optional. And then we had a really, really disruptive second semester of what was their junior year so they're maybe discounting grades. So mm-hmm. then we're going into an application season that are really competitive because there might be all of those students who are deferred and reapplying to colleges. So again, impaction on the system. And then also uh, sort of a, a narrower way in which applications are being considered. So I bring this up and, and, and you know, the, the, I keep thinking about like this moment that we're in but also what happens after we're out of this moment and what are the waves of impact we'll have from this moment? Um, you know, that's the, the waves of impact, not only are, 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 are going to be felt economically, but also educationally. And it speaks to, I think, you know, why a college education still really matters because we don't yet know what that impact is going to be long-term but we know that the, some of the surest ways throughout history, through our recent modern, you know, educational history, is to have that higher level and deeper um, subset of learning, and that most jobs in the United States today still require some form of post-secondary education, whether it's a two-year certificate, associate's degree, or a four-year degree. Mm-hmm. I'm curious for the the two of you if you could. Um... You, you talked about these sort of waves of um, change moving into the future. If if you could, it's not going to, you know, uh, this moment um, is not going to change everything um, all at once. But I wonder for the two of you if 
you had your way, if you could, both thinking about your own experience, um, you know, working through this trajectory that you're counseling so many students through now, um, if you could sort of throw one stone that created a wave of change as a result of this moment, um, what would it be? What would you What would you like to see five, five, ten years from now? Um, that's different from the problems you're working on now, and different from the ways you experienced it as a first gen student yourself. That's a really good question. Gosh, I, um, you know, a lot of work has been done for many, many years in supporting students to access college. The work is not complete, and I, I fear a retrenchment there because, again, of the um, threat to engagement by our students. Like we can no longer take it as a given that our students are going to graduate from high school, right? There's going to be a real threat to that. But I think in five to ten years from now, what I hope is that there's more supports on the post-secondary end because what we're seeing, too, and for a long time hasn't really been addressed, is actually supporting degree attainment. You know, it's it's something that I think the Cal States have figured out they need to work on with mm. their um, graduation, um, graduation 2050 goals or 2025. I can't remember the year, but I mean, yeah. it's there's more recognition now that it's not enough to support first generation students to get into college, but to actually help them and support them and encourage them and make sure they have the money to complete college is something that I think we it has been overlooked and it's something we need to do better. Um, the I think the higher ed system is feeling shockwaves right now, um, from a funding standpoint and from you know the you know the sort of the the business models they've built that are predicated on um, monies coming in through housing and other means of bringing in revenue to the university that are just not possible because of COVID. Um, but you know, like w- the upshot of this is I really do hope that what's put into clearer focus is that the students that are going um, to, you know, pursue their post-secondary education, that we need to do more to make sure that they actually have a degree in hand. Um, Because there's only about 11% of students across the nation that are um, from lower income households that are actually finishing college. Um, You know, fulfillment fund students were finishing at 77%. So well, you can see the difference that having a good support system makes in achieving that goal, right? So that's my that's my pipe dream. And, you know, for me as a first-gen student, man, I feel you, Ellie. The first thing I said were, where's my people? Oh, my gosh, this campus is so big and vast. And how do I even, where do I even begin? That overwhelming feeling of just feeling like a fish out of water and like I would somehow made some colossal mistake was I really supposed to be here? Mm. Um, that was really jarring to the system and, and caused me many, many nights and moments and weeks of uncertainty and anxiety. And so precisely why we need to give a voice to our first generation student communities and have, have it be recognized that community building is important and that is a tried and true way of helping to support them too. Um, you know, actually obtain their degrees to, to, you know, making it across the finish line. My, uh, my dream would be resourcing our communities to fully eliminate the opportunity gap. 
And if we are resourcing our communities by paying our teachers well and our educators well, um, so that we have highly qualified educators in front of our students who are then preparing our students to be successful in college, um, providing the adequate resources to be able to function in a classroom that is not overcrowded, that is clean, that has all the adequate technology that they need for learning, um, that all students have access to the technology that they need for the 21st century learning that we're now in. Um, all of these components um, would lead to greater achievement for our students, not only in graduating high school, but accessing college at a much higher rate, accessing more selective colleges not just our local community colleges, which are great schools as well, but they're heavily impacted. And we know that with our students, the first generation students of color, they require more support because we don't know. We don't know what we don't know when we get to campus. And mm -hmm. if they have resources around them, they're able to be more successful on the post-secondary side. And so at the more selective universities, there are a lot more resources available to them. And if we can fully support our students on the high school end to prepare them to be successful at the selective colleges in the four-year um, track, then our students will be that much more successful coming back to their communities and um, resourcing around supporting their family members and um, their community members. I think it's a a uh, beautiful vision, and I think it's a a great place to um, to wrap for now. Um, we talked a little bit about the potential of getting to check in with some fulfillment students down the line, and talking a little bit during the semester about how their experiences are shaping up. I would also love um, times a thousand to figure out a way to cover the event in October um, and give people more access who can't make it. That one, fulfillment.org slash destination college. Um, that's going to be in the show notes. Um, the event is coming up October 11 to 14. And um, this will not be the last episode where um, I help remind folks for uh, – you know, for those who the the um, the doors are open, I will uh, try to do everything I can to help you advertise. Um, thank you both. I can't. I can't. Uh, there's. This was uh, such an important conversation to me. I really appreciate you both spending the time, and um, I am so glad that there is a uh, fulfillment fund, and and that you two are doing the work that you are. Thank, Thank you. you so much, Mark. I mean, we're happy that you're bringing together a community of people that really, really deeply cares about education, wants to be in the know, wants to think deeply about how to resolve these issues. We encourage everyone to just activate, you know, wherever you're located, wherever you are, get involved. There's a fulfillment fund somewhere in your community, hopefully, and hopefully one day, we won't need to exist, right? That's that's the goal is we won't need to exist because um, we will have resolved these systemic problems and that we are all on an equal playing field. And until then, we will um, work hard and march steadily and create, you know, bang the drum and, and rattle the pot so that we get more attention for um, the first generation students that we serve that are so deserving of this opportunity. 
Amen. Thank you both. I'll see you guys on, you. on uh, TikTok, on the Fulfillment TikTok. <laughs> there we <you> go. <laughs> All right. Thanks Thank so much. Thank you. Take care. Thank you, guys. Bye. For more info about advertising with us, sponsoring the show, or if you have story ideas you want to share, find me on Twitter at MA Lesser. The tracks in this podcast were produced by Leroy Tindy, a guest in episode zero, alumni of two bomber nations, Ithaca and the Bronx, New York, and engineer of digital things and fresh beats. Find him on SoundCloud at Air Tindy Beats. No such thing is produced by me, Mark Lesser, a learner like you, and our show notes can be found at nosuchthingpodcast.org.